they have to speak up. They have to teach people to love their vaginas and respect them and demand that exact same respect out of everyone that is caring for them. Welcome to the show. This is Good as in the Details, and I am your host, Gwendolyn Dalski. In this episode, we are talking about reproductive health. We are talking about vaginas and vulvas and sex positive talk. There's even some discussion about sex toys. We're also talking about pregnancy and postpartum. I mean, there's a lot here. My co-host for this is Ellie Anderson. She's also a philosophy professor, and I met her at a few Simone de Beauvoir conferences. You might remember her from the episode with Damiana Chi on how to be a femdom. So thank you, Ellie, for joining the show once again. And our interviewee is the creator of the vagina blog, April Davis. I have a link to her website. There's a book club. There's all sorts of information. Her Instagram is fantastic. And if you have any questions, you can get in touch with her there. For us, if you have any questions, email. I love checking my email. That's not true. But email anyway. Good is in the details pod at gmail.com. We're also on Instagram. Good is in the details pod. And of course, you can always get in touch with me on Instagram, gdoll10. Before we get started, just a reminder, if you haven't yet, please rate and review the show. For those of you who have, thank you so much. It really means a lot. It allows the show to get a broader audience and you know what? It just puts a smile on my face. And if you'd like to be a patron of the show, support the show, there are three tiers, $2, $5, $10. Every little bit helps and you get behind the scenes content and access to the pods book club. Okay, now... Let's talk about vaginas. Hi. <laughs> it's nice to meet you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Ellie. I'm also a philosophy professor. I teach feminist philosophy and continental European philosophy. And Wow. I think I came across your Instagram when I was going through my pregnancy and postpartum. I think that that's how I came across your work. So the vagina blog, we should put that out there. And you've got a podcast, which is great. I've listened to a couple episodes. I really enjoyed it. Your background is in women's uh, sexual health or reproductive health. Is that correct? Yeah. Is that fair to say? Okay. Your, okay, so your Instagram is gigantic. I've noticed I've just made some notes here. Sexual health, the clitoris, menstruation. Yeah. You've got stuff on postpartum, reproductive health. How did you get started? Where did this begin? And then how did it come to be the vagina blog? So I started this whole journey. I think I, I've always had a natural curiosity for anatomy, physiology, kind of everything in the family. And also sexuality has always fascinated me naturally. When I went to school for emergency medicine, and that was the first time I had been exposed to the idea of like childbirth and what that could look like and learning about it. And I, I was just fully intrigued. And so after I had my second baby, or I guess before, while I was pregnant with my second baby, I was reading anything I could get my hands on. I read every single birth book I could find on childbirth. I was reading midwifery textbooks, medical textbooks, I, anything and everything I could learn, I wanted to know. And after I had her, I was like, you know, I want to become a doula. Like, I think childbirth is where I belong. Just female body health, vaginas, like this is my realm, you know? And so I started looking into becoming trained as a doula. I ended up instead training with a nurse midwife as a birth assistant doing home delivery. 
she was so glad I had medical background. And essentially, you know, a, a birth assistant really is kind of a doula that can help medically. And so I worked as a birth assistant for five years. I started taking on my own clients as a doula as well during that time. And then I was also working as a birth photographer. And yeah, I got to see birth in every setting with different providers and different support systems. And I also got to know some gynecological care as well. So the nurse midwife I worked for was also our NP here at our Planned Parenthood. So she was also doing a lot of GYN. And so I was able to not just see what things look like while pregnant and through pregnancy and postpartum, but also some of that gynecological. So it's it's really interesting. And after I had my third, I kind of hit a breaking point in my life where being on call wasn't something I could do. So I was like, what in the world do I do with all this information? I have learned so much. I've had all these incredible experiences. I'm so empowered with all this knowledge and this education. Like, how can I share this? And stepping in and creating a platform just seemed like the next best thing to do. That's great. In philosophy, when we're talking about things of philosophy of love or philosophy of sex, one of the things that has come across is that the woman's body is essentially relegated to to object or to be the carrier. Her, Her body's just simply insignificant. And one of the major ways in which that manifests is the lack of naming body parts. (laughs) don't even talk about it. And that has shown up in ways of shame or dirtiness or, you know, all of these things. And something that I thought was great about your Instagram page was that you are putting out there, this is what the vagina looks like, the vulva. This is a Mm -hmm. picture of the clitoris, or this is a drawing of the clitoris. There's no pictures, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's a drawing, a diagram. (laughs) Um, And that that is actually one of the steps to reproductive health is to go ahead and name the body parts. Yes. It's so important. It is devastating to me that if you go open up any anatomy book, you will not see the clitoris when they show the female reproductive system. Wow. You know what I think that is? I think it's because the narrative of sex is for to have babies. Once you introduce the clitoris, then you have come up with another function of sex, which could be fun. Yeah. <laughs> like that could be the point is, well, is pleasure and like, we're afraid of it. It doesn't serve any purpose. Like it's no, it's not a necessary. And I'm like, uh, I feel personally that it is necessary. It does serve a necessary <laughs> purpose. Maybe that's just me. I feel really good about including the clitoris and the female reproductive system. One thing I think about in this context as well is some of the empirical research that's been done on teenage sexuality and specifically heterosexual encounters among adolescents, because there's this great book, Girls and Sex by Peggy Orenstein. And she talks about how there's a huge discrepancy between blowjobs and cunnilingus. And Mm -hmm. I think teenage girls are socialized to service teenage boys and to like give blowjobs and it becomes a sort of status thing. But teenage boys are socialized to think that vaginas are gross and, you know, sort of you don't have to reciprocate if somebody is going down on you. Yeah. Peggy Ornstein, she has another book. She just did a follow-up earlier this year on boys and sex. I love her. I love her stuff. And one of the things, you know, this fear of, I guess, naming the body parts for, for women or for young girls that she talks about, that there's this fear that then women will go out and be like socially active or whatever. And socially, sexually active, I guess social as well. <laughs> um, that 
it actually decreases the amount of harm that can be done to young women. And I've thought about this. If a young woman understood how her body was supposed to feel during sex, and then it wasn't something that was done to her, but that she was mm -hmm. a participant, you would decrease the kind of violence or objectification that happens because a woman would immediately know this is not for me. This isn't how it's supposed to work. Mm -hmm. having that kind of information. Mm -hmm. And there's such a long history too of thinking about the reproductive systems as having, as, as being passive versus being active, right? Like the, in, there's a lot of feminist philosophy that talks about the way that at least going back to ancient Greece and what we call the so-called Western tradition, there's this notion of the vagina as like a sheaf for the sword, right? <laughs> and something that is entered an envelope. There's a the Belgian feminist philosopher Lucy Rigore talks about the vagina as a sort of envelope. And instead, she encourages thinking about the lips of the vulva as really resisting the narrative of passivity with, you know, people with vaginas. And instead, thinking about the sort of duality, the way that the lips of the vulva touch and they're not you know, it's a sort of multiplicity, this sexuality is dynamic and, uh, and multiple rather than being sort of just like the singular phallus that we get with the, with the symbol of the penis. I'm wondering if it's because it's more complex that that's why the guys, like historically men are just like, you know what, like that's a whole, like that's it. Like that's all that well, they it's external. It's external. I mean, that, that's what's difficult. Um, I think sometimes too is males typically are really familiar with all their genitalia because it's all external. It's easy to see. It's very accessible. And I think we've created all this shame around the female body on top of it being internal and harder to see and harder to get to and harder to maybe even understand for ourselves, especially because we've created all this shame around it. And so something that I encourage everyone to do is to get a mirror and take a look at things. It is so interesting how it changes for people as they do this because taking that mirror, seeing what things look like, how they change as they're aroused, how color changes, how things move and change shape and blossom, if you will, right? I mean, it's, it's incredible. And once you start to see that and respect and love that part of yourself, suddenly you have very little interest in dealing with someone who also doesn't love and respect that part of you. It makes it a lot easier to be like, because I've talked to people who are like, oh no, my partner's not interested unless I'm completely clean shaven or bleached or, you know, X, Y, and Z. When you start to fall in love with that part of yourself and get to know that part of yourself, I think it's so much easier to be like, I don't really care if you think I need to be shaved. I don't think I need to be shaved. So, you know, so many people profit off of this notion of shame. In your experience, April, what is one of the biggest, let's say, myths that you need to bust? Or what do, what do people come where you see one of the biggest hurdles is when it comes to understanding women's health or reproductive health? Your orgasms are your, they're yours. You need to own them. And that looks a lot like not faking, understanding your own body and how it works and what it responds to and what it doesn't respond to and being willing to speak up and say so. And just generally like having that, taking that ownership back. I feel like a lot of times as women, or at least as I speak to women and even myself, oftentimes they feel like their sexuality is owned by their parents and they have to answer their parents as they're, when they're young. 
and then it gets switched into being owned by their partners or their religious leaders as they get older. And we need to kind of flip that narrative. Our orgasms are our problem. We need to own our sexuality. It is not on our partners to please us. It's on ourselves to chase pleasure and to speak up and to be familiar with what we like. I think that's an interesting point here in terms of the way that on the one hand, women, as you mentioned, are not educated to speak up about our own pleasure. But then on the other hand, we are educated to be extremely sensitive to both our own feelings and the feelings of others. And so I guess I'm wondering, I already get discouraged by the amount of work that women have to do to, and you know, this includes teenage girls as well, how much work we have to do to explain to boys and men how we're feeling, how they're feeling, right? We have to do this double duty of being the emotional caretakers of both ourselves and others. And so I'm wondering how we can chase pleasure in the way that you're really compellingly describing it without that being, without that putting us in a position of having to do even more work, right? Of like, I'm going to please you and tell you how to please me. Well, I think it's really important in a partnership for both partners to go in curious. And if your partner is not willing to do that, and then I think for the next generation, it looks a lot like teaching our sons to go in enthusiastic and eager to please and excited and curious. Teach them about consent and enthusiastic consent and what that looks like. Teach our daughters to uphold their partners to that same standard. It's teaching our kids coming into that next generation to want better for themselves and also for the people that they're with and to have high expectations for the people that they're with totally. as, as they're looking for partners. So educating boys and men on pleasure. And I think that uh, that's, it's interesting to contrast these heterosexist encounters with queer encounters because so much of the discourse around consent is modeled after queer encounters. And I think especially when, you know, you have partners who both have vaginas, there's much more of a sense of this may take a while. Tell me what you like. Let me help you explore what you like. That curiosity that you're describing, April. Isn't it such a beautiful lesson we can take from the queer community? <laughs> they have these conversations. Heterosexual people don't always. There's assumptions that are made. Like, well, you have a penis and I have a vagina, so guess what we're going to do? There isn't a lot of discussion, whereas I feel like in a lot of queer relationships, they're like, hey, what do you want to do? This is kind of what I like to do. What do you like to do? There's a discussion there. We need to learn from that. What I'm seeing, and um, Ellie, we've actually talked about this before when we talked with Damiana, that sex is not a separate issue from, it's, sex is actually an expression of deeper cultural attitudes and gender norms. So all of those things are going on. So it's, yeah, I think that's something that I'm realizing and that when, just as you said, like if a, if a young boy is not being taught that sex is not just for him, but it's an interactive thing with something with pleasure when being with a vagina is how to in terms of the proper way to discuss this. You can say person with vagina. Person with vagina. Okay. Or cisgender woman if you're talking about a cisgender woman. (laughs) That it is really this idea that the woman is just not object. And I started to think about this more even during my pregnancy when people would say, you know, when you're out in public, somebody will touch your belly when it's visible. Mm -hmm. And which is so inappropriate, but it made me think of, well, why would somebody think that that's okay? why would it be? And it's because it's like, I'm the vessel carrying the baby. Like I, my comfort is irrelevant 
it is the baby that is important. And then when my body was changing as a result of pregnancy and I didn't know what was going on, I didn't understand some of the changes that were being made. It bothered me that that was not part of sex education, that it's as though they talk about in sex education, you've got the very beginning of a fertilized egg and then birth. And all of that in between, (laughs) all of that in between. And I also had, I was a high risk pregnancy. And so there were other things that were going on with my body. And I thought, why is this news to me now? I have a PhD, you know, but I felt like, like a child, just not understanding what was happening. Yeah. One of the things that you mentioned in your blog was something, a condition that you had during your pregnancy. What was that? So I have hyperemesis gravidarum. I essentially can't keep food down while I'm pregnant. And you said that somebody had responded like you're lucky, right? Like th- there yeah. was no... Well, it's I lose weight while I'm pregnant. And so I get a lot of compliments on how great I'm looking and just how lucky I am to not be putting on weight while I'm pregnant because what a blessing. And meanwhile, I'm dying it really speaks to how broken our culture is that someone would compliment me while going through grave and scary hardship on how I looked. I'm so sorry you dealt with that condition. That sounds so intense. And is that, I'm curious about like, yeah, I'm curious about the, the nuts and bolts of it. Does that, it, does it affect you in a particular trimester? Is it sort of ongoing? Are there certain triggers for that? You know, they are still trying to figure out what causes it. Is it an autoimmune? Is it that something happened? Is it, they've found a couple things. They have found a higher instance in people who had previous eating disorders, which is interesting. And so I've even had people try to use that one against me. Like, well, if you weren't bulimic, well, I wasn't bulimic. I was anorexic. So... I, I've had people like, well, do you just like throwing up? I mean, you were, and I'm like, I've never liked throwing up. <laughs> Let's just wow. be clear here. <laughs> They've also found that it, there's a higher instance with tall, heavy women, which is me. Um, so I, I fall into a lot of the, like, we're seeing some patterns. I fall into some of those patterns, but they're still not sure how these things are linked. I think it might just be a gene. Sometimes it's genetic, like sometimes it's hereditary, sometimes it's not. I... I'm kind of in the middle where like it's serious, but I'm not, I didn't have to be on like an NG tube. I was able to go away with just doing a pick line. So it's, I don't know what a pick line is. It's a central line from your arm to your heart. It's a long-term IV. And so I was able to get away with just doing fluids and then also doing my medications through the IV. So I couldn't throw them up. Okay. My goodness. So this is a definitely a PSA. <laughs> um, yeah. Do not comment on women's body. Well, the thing is that do not comment on women's bodies. Period. At, at, like at all. <laughs> I think this connects We've, a bit to the discussion we were having about the penis versus vagina as well, and the way that if we think about those as symbols rather than as body parts, they really are coded in such a way that the penis is associated with like the whole quote man right it's like you're masculine if like this is the expression of you as masculine and that is also coded in terms of agency like this is who you are you know big dick energy small dick energy that's expressive that's you know big dick energy is like a positive thing to say and then when we think about the vagina as a symbolic value of quote femininity 
then we have this idea that it's not only gross, but also that it's just like a sheer object, right? And so I think that's one way also that we're taught to associate our bodies with not just being an expression of who we are, but actually an expression of us as an object, right? We've just been told over and over again to shrink and to be quiet and to be easy and to be small. And it it just comes down, it bleeds into everything. Be quiet, be dainty, be small, be tiny, be littler, be quieter, be, and you know, you just get shrunk down to nothing. And it's, it's just time. It's time to be done with all of that noise. Also, I, I, something that gives me, one, one of my good friends, a midwife I worked for, she's 70. And spending time with older women has been such a gift for me and a blessing. The perspective that they have is fantastic, but also being able to like, back in the day, moms were allowed to be mom shaped. <laughs> there wasn't this like weird pressure for everyone to look like they're 20 for the rest of their lives. We, there was no getting back to your pre-baby body because they didn't believe in that crap. They didn't buy this. <laughs> like we bought in. And so I, I'm just real comfortable with being like, you know what? so many of the moms before me they got to be moms and look like moms and enjoy mom life because mom life's hard enough when you're not worrying about 15 pounds yeah it takes nine months to get that baby and that body stretched to that give yourself at least nine months if not more and don't ever think you go back because you don't you don't go back your kids will change you every single piece of you changes when you have children it just does it's okay to step into the next season yeah oh I like the way you put that what are other than let's say the clitoris what are some other let's say myths or when we're using incorrect language that you've come across I'm thinking vagina and vulva that one yeah vagina and vulva is huge people don't understand vagina is internal it's not something you can see your vulva is external. That's what you're seeing. Your vulva, your labia, all of that. That's all what you're seeing on the external. And so it's hard when people ask sometimes specific questions about the vagina. I'm like, I think you mean the vulva. <laughs> I want to think a little bit more about birth because I'm the only one here who hasn't had any babies. And so, but my mom was a doula. She's a retired doula. She's almost 70. So, and awesome. so, yeah. So I was raised with a lot of discourse around how awful the medicalization of birth can be, how it really disenfranchises women. And so I'm curious, April, how have you seen that and how do you deal with that in your work? <laughs> You're going to get a lot of my biases starting to shine through here that I try to kind of keep tucked in. <laughs> Bring it on. <laughs> I have a very protective nature and working in childbirth only made me hyper-protective of women and people with vaginas. Some of the things that I saw happen at the hands of doctors, they haunt me. In fact, I was telling my good friend who's a coach, she was asking me like, why are you doing this? Like we're talking about the deep whys of why you do some of the things that you do. And I was talking about the why behind the vagina blog. When I was a young doula, I went to a birth. She had, was a late transfer. She was too high risk for a home birth, transferred into hospital care with a doctor she didn't know who's an old man who'd been practicing for a long time and obviously did not care. And he was really like, didn't, she didn't want an epidural. He wasn't super supportive of that. She got to where she was pushing. She only been pushing for like 20 minutes. And he was like, do you want me to numb you? And she's like, well, no, like I'm pushing. I don't need an epidural. And he's like, no, I can give you some local anesthetic. 
And she was like, that's weird. And she like looks at me and I'm like, that's weird. And he's like, no, it'll just help, you know, ring a fire and stuff. It'll be great. And so I was like, I mean, this is totally up to you. And she's like, okay, let's go ahead and do it. Numbs her. She pushes maybe like one or two more times. And then he goes, mm, let's go ahead and do an episiotomy. Thank goodness you're already numb. And she hadn't been pushing for very long. And I was, she kind of looks at me and I'm like, you don't, no one's in distress here. Like your baby's not in distress. You're not in distress. You don't need to do this. And he just was like, I can have that baby out on the next push if you let me do it. What wow. is an episiotomy? Episiotomy. So he went ahead and just took those scissors and cut deep down into the muscle, just hunk. And if you've ever heard the sound of scissors snipping through chicken breast, that's what it sounded like. And this haunts me. And this will haunt me for the rest of my life that I didn't fight harder and try to convince her to say no to him because she's still damaged and it was 100% unnecessary. I've seen episiotomies when they're necessary. They look a lot like snipping through paper. It, because by then, typically, everything's really thinned out. Or honestly, if your baby's in distress and going to die on you, snip through those muscles. That's a totally different scenario. This was not necessary. And he chopped into her vagina. Wow. She, won't, she will live with that for the rest of her life because he was lazy and didn't want to deal with it. And is like, look, I've been doing this for the last 50 years. Back when I was trained 50 years ago, this is how we did it. That was routine. Oh, my God. I, I, like, I can't live with anyone else having this happen to them. I have to do something. I have to speak up. I have to teach people to love their vaginas and respect them and demand that exact same respect out of everyone that is caring for them and anyone who wants to enjoy the, the pleasure of their vagina. And so that is what motivates me. That is what keeps me on this warpath. This is why I really struggle with some of the medical model of care that we've come to. And it's difficult. I see both sides of it. Doctors want you to feel comfortable, quiet, and easy when you're in the hospital. It's why we push epidurals and Pitocin. It's quiet, you're comfortable, and you're easy, and you just have that baby. And if your baby ends up in the NICU because they did a whole bunch of checks, and if you end up with uh, things like episiotomies and stuff, aren't we all so glad the baby's safe? Who cares wow. about maternal morbidity, which is four times worse in the medical model than with the midwifery model of care? Wow. And we have the highest in the United, the, the United States has the highest rate. That's something that... Um, I don't know. I, it just, I remember maternal when mortality I, yeah. is, mortality is a joke here. It is a joke. You are more likely to die in childbirth now than when we were born. That is insane. That is a disgrace to our country. Apparently when someone who is black says that they are in pain, they're less likely to be treated. You know, black girls are, they're hypersexualized. They're also right now two to three more times likely to die in childbirth. Yeah, that's what I had it's heard so is disturbing. that so yeah. then you have these black women who are not being taken seriously. Oh. Well, you have to think in my lifetime, I've seen that change in medical textbooks. So like when I first got certified, it was still on, on like in textbooks that people of color, their skin was thicker and they didn't need pain relief as much. No. Oh yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> Mm -hmm. So the problem with the medical community as a whole is it is inherently misogynistic because women's bodies are just the broken version of a male body. They can't test on women because women are only hormonally the same 12 days out of the year. Yeah. We're not good test subjects. Men are. So of course they tested everything on men and did everything on men and women's bodies are the broken male body. And then to take it a step further because of slaves and everything else, so much of our medical experimentation took place on them and that's when they started to like oh native americans 
they're very stoic and they don't need pain relief like white people do. Same with, with blacks. Oh, and, and same with, and so they're in a medical textbook and there's still some of the remnants of this throughout some of like the nursing textbooks and stuff on, on how to treat people of a different background than yours. They don't feel pain as much as you do. Like they've even found that children, children of color receive less pain management for appendectomies than white children. It's uh, gross. I had heard maybe a couple years ago where they were talking about this report of African-American women dying in childbirth and they were looking, is it an economic thing? What is it? And it wasn't, it didn't matter what the education was. It, it was just, in it fact, was just a the more educated people of color are the more likely they are to die. So they're actually finding that black women who have master's degrees or above are the most likely to die in childbirth. Oh my God. And then, yeah. And then two years later, what John is that? Oliver That's that racism episode, yeah. guys. There's no yeah. other way, you know? Every other industrialized nation, they're midwives. Midwives deliver their babies, even in the hospital. Wow. April, I think you caught me off guard. <laughs> I'm just stunned. I'm just, I'm just stunned. What are your thoughts on postpartum? <laughs> nice to be able to pick your brain about that since I'm, like I said, I'm four and a half months. I think postpartum needs to be such a gentle, loving time. We do need to start looking at it as the fourth trimester. We need to pull all that weird pressure we've put on people in postpartum, we need to remove all of that. When my friends were first having kids back before I had children, I had no idea how to support them. And the more I've learned, the more I just, we got to love each other. Women got to support women. People got to support people. We have to love each other and save some space for people as they're recovering. Childbirth is so transformative for you as a human. It changes you. It changes your dynamic in your relationships. It changes the way that you look at your parents and how you were raised. You will revisit every single chapter of your childhood as you raise your child through those same chapters. It's a complete, and why can't we just love and support each other through that? Show up with food, wash dishes for each other, do the things that we need for each other, be the villages that we lost because of manifest destiny. Showing up with food, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was that was essential. I didn't realize. I mean, the friends who did that. I mean, I remember one of my good friends. She brought just this giant thing of like of, of food, and then another one of soup, and this pot of well, it was more like stew. It was nice and thick and everything. And I can't yeah. even tell you what a savor that was because you're asleep and only wake up to really feed yeah. the baby. And then there is no time for you to make food. So when someone shows no. up with food, so that's also good advice. That was the best yeah. gift ever. Yeah. And, and just allow yourself some space to heal and to process and to this expectation. I went to a birth once and it was a Canadian woman and she'd recently moved to the United States and all of her postpartum instructions are six weeks. Don't do this until six weeks. Make sure you don't do this until, and she's like, I'm confused. You keep saying six weeks. Are you implying that I should be returning to work at six weeks? I was like, uh, yeah, no, here in the United States. She's like, that doesn't, she's like, no, in Canada, it's 12 weeks. I don't think and I was like, yeah, that's his Canada actually supports mothers and families and every other industrialized nation also supports mothers and families. So we don't do that here in the United States. We need you back at work. So if you could just diaper up <laughs> and head back, you know, that'd be great. That extra time. I mean, I just happened to, I mean, my daughter was born at the end of January. And so I you know, in a pandemic, everything's shut down. So I actually, it's a great time to be on maternity leave. But I realized that once that six week mark hit, 
I thought to myself, there is no way I would have been able to go back to work. And I cannot believe that that is the pressure that's put on women. And then the eight yeah. week, since I had a cesarean, when the eight week, I thought, I still, there's no way. It wasn't until about 12 weeks where I started to do yoga and I started to feel mm -hmm. like myself again. And I got, you know, like even with podcasting, I'm able to do that. And I yep. felt more like myself after 12 weeks, but the idea of six weeks and then going back just, there's just, it just seemed way too soon. And, oh, but yeah. not only that, having the 12 weeks where I felt like myself, I was actually more productive and I was better at all of the things that I needed to get done. Oh yeah. Like how, how are you supposed to establish breastfeeding? How are you supposed to establish taking care of yourself? When it comes to sex ed and things like this and learning about the vagina, what are some progressive things? What has made you light up and say, I'm really glad that this shift is happening. I'm happy to see that I, I feel like, you know, my friends and I, they're all raising kids together. I'm really happy to see that talking about sex and anatomy and everything alongside it has become pretty normalized. I love, like my daughters know what my menstrual cups are or my discs are. They know about what a period is and that I have one every single month and that it's not a scary thing. Uh, my son, when he's older, will understand that as well. I have something that I love is I have a whole library of books that are at their disposal. Anytime they want to know anything, there's a book for that. I have books about, and they're all kids books about this, about how babies are made. I have a really cool one that actually is photographs of fetuses as they go through the progression and my kids love that one because that's so applicable to them especially since they watched me be pregnant with my you know my their brother and um, they were able to look at it and be like okay so that's oh so this this the semen went and found the egg and then oh and then it grew like this and you know but beyond that my daughter was just at the dinner table she was complaining to me she's like I don't want to bleed once a month that's so horrible I don't want to do that I just I don't want to I don't like it and, I, and I'm I'm going to when I get older I'm going to cut my hair really short and I'm just going to pretend to be a boy and then I won't have to do that wow <laughs> I was like sweetheart boys go through stuff too no one gets out of puberty scotch-free and we explained what erections were and what that was like and they were like oh well that's not convenient either and I was like so it doesn't matter what gender they kind of all end up going through all these things and I want them to know because they're going to be a fantastic ally to their friends, male or female or somewhere in between if they have an understanding of this. Yeah, that's so great. I think the education component, it's, it's good to hear that it's changing somewhat because I remember like, growing up with a doula mom, we had diagrams everywhere and books everywhere and stuff like that. <laughs> And my sister got in big trouble with all of her friends' moms at school because in first grade, she explained to them what sex was. <laughs> I love it. And so I my mom it. had like all these calls coming in from parents, mostly I think, or entirely moms, being like, you, your daughter taught my daughter what sex is. And my mom was like, sorry. <laughs> it kind of but I'd rather those were my kids. That's the, that's the phone calls I'd rather be getting, right? Is that my kids were too educated and knew too much and were telling other kids correct information. That's the phone call I'd rather get. Totally. With the vagina blog, was there um, anything that caught you off guard when you were working on it? The responses from people that you thought, oh, okay. 
I've had a, a handful of, of things that have surprised me. I, I don't, when I very first started, I actually had a lot of people kind of coming at me saying that I was not doing a good enough job being inclusive. And for me, initially, I, I bristled because I was like, look, it's just me. I honestly don't even really know what I'm doing anyway. And I'm pretty white passing. And it's, I'm an influencer. Like, this is an account about me testing stuff, telling you guys stuff about stuff. But it really got me kind of thinking like, okay, representation and visibility is something that is very important to me. So what do I do to, to bring some of that into my space? What does that look like? How can I do this? And that's a lot of the reason that I started my podcast. I wanted to make sure that I was elevating voices from the LGBTQ community, from people of color, um, from people, people from different countries. I love, I've had a couple of Australians on my podcast, someone from London, and I love all the diversity. I love bringing together all these completely different backgrounds. And because sex education is totally different in London than it is here. It's totally different in Melbourne than it is here. So being able to have these conversations with people of all different everything, I've loved it. And I've loved being able to bring that into my platform and my space. And so that's something I'm really trying to work on. But initially was was hard because I was like, I don't, I don't even know what to do. Um, the second problem is a lot of people really love to try and put their icky, icky shame all over me. If I start talking about sex toys, people are like, oh, I don't need sex toys, so ew. Okay, pretend that you did need sex toys. Is it so wrong of me to educate people on how fantastic they can be? Is it wrong for people to have orgasms when maybe they weren't before? Like, no. why do we have to make them <laughs> <No, it's> <laughs> That's true. With sex toys, I think that there's a couple of states where it's like you can't sell them or I, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but there's like really restrictive laws in a couple of a couple of Southern states. Um, I know I need to, you know what, you know how I found out about it was because my students for philosophy of sex and love, they can do presentations on, on topics. And there was a group that did it on sex toys and the difference in laws from state to state. And it was really interesting, but I don't remember, but I just remember it was interesting. It was a great presentation. Fascinating. But they dated back to ancient Egypt of the first sex toys. So it's not like we just came up with it or something like that. There's a podcast called The Model Health Show. And there was an entire episode dedicated to the health benefits of sex. Because normally sex education, as Peggy Orenstein talks about, is in a negative way, like disease, death, or unwanted pregnancy but that there are all these health benefits. One of them is that women think clearer, like the way that their brain lights up from an orgasm, it's all over their brain. It's not just a part of their brain that lights up. So it floods the brain with more oxygen and they're able to think clearer. For men, it reduces the chance of cardiovascular disease if they have sex at least once a week. There are all of these benefits. So I don't know why we need to talk about the benefit that sex is part of what it means to be healthy. Orgasms are good for you and they're real fun. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Yeah, I think this whole narrative is inseparable from not only patriarchy, which is obvious, but also the Christian legacy of the U.S. as well. And this way that a lot of us, whether whether you grew up Christian or not, just by virtue of growing up American, have received Mm -hmm. this ideology that at the very, very most, sex is an expression of love, but at the very, very least, it's like just for reproductive purposes. And even the narrative that sex is an expression of love 
which for me was, you know, pretty liberating. Like when I was, when I was really young and first learning about this, even that I now have come to see as part of the very same logic, it's limiting us in this monogamous, generally heterosexual cisgender framework, rather than encouraging us to think about sex as like, yeah, it can be an expression of love, but it doesn't need to be. It can be all sorts of other things as well. And there's still a lot of debate about this from a scientific perspective, whether it's biological or anthropological or sitting at the intersection of the two between the original sort of quote function of pleasure. And April, you mentioned at the beginning, pleasure in itself can be functional. So we don't even need to find a quote function of pleasure. But even if you are trying to find one, there's some research that supports the hypothesis that the reason it takes people with vaginas such a long time to orgasm is because their group sex was much more common among humans sort of back in the day. Back in the day is very vague here, but there's a book in particular <laughs> called Sex at Dawn, which articulates this hypothesis. Oh, I'm writing that down. Sort of group sex. Yeah, yeah. It's resisting the, the monogamous narrative that we have around sex. And, and it's, I, it says it's hypothetical. You know, there, there's a lot of empirical evidence to support it, but it's by no means conclusive. Well, it's, I was going to say, I love um, the book Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski. You guys read that one? No. No, but I noticed that you have, you have a book club, so I'm glad you mentioned it because I wanted to say, I wanted to ask you so about good. it. good. This book I can recommend to anyone and everyone should read it. It is so good, but she talks more, she talks a lot about how we've really turned sex into like sex drive when in reality, it's more of a break and an accelerator. Some of us have a really sensitive break and some of us have a really sensitive accelerator and some of us have a very dull break and a very dull accelerator. And women typically identify as having not necessarily a problem with their accelerator, but a problem with their break. That's something that we miss because there is, there's, your head has to be in it with sex. And so you might just have very sensitive breaks. It's not that you can't get in the mood if everything else is turned off. It's not that you're not into it when you're in it. It's that you have to go turn everything else off or get it taken care of so that your break isn't so sensitive. She also came out with a workbook. So that was what I wanted to start off next year is doing the workbook with the book because it's so good. Um, We've read things like Spiritual Midwifery which I highly recommend to anybody. Taking Charge of Your Fertility is another one that I feel like every 14-year-old should get handed Taking Charge of Your Fertility because it really is like a, here's what's going on with your body through your whole cycle. There you go. There's all the information. You have a vagina. There you go. It's so good. So those are a couple favorites. And then what else did we read? Sex That Works, Love That Works. I have a whole list over on the blog too, but I've got tons more to read. Like I've been writing down the ones you guys have been recommending because I sex at dawn sounds fascinating. Yes. <laughs> <It's so good. laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, as soon as this is over, I'll be on my Kindle. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm well, Amazon going on. Making a list of all the books you're recommending mm-hmm. to April. Well, April, what do you have coming up on your podcast? Let's just do a little plug right there. Mm, so I do actually this week, I've, and I don't know when this will come out, but I'll probably have already talked about it. There are some lawsuits happening right now around IUDs. So I will be talking about that and also the ties between talc powder and ovarian cancer. Okay. So I have a really cool interview with a lawyer. Um, I've got a couple. I talked to Hilda and they are the creator of the Volva Gallery. 
So that's coming up. They are awesome. And then I've got some other good stuff. I'm going on hiatus in the late summer. So probably through the, through July, I'll have more, more stuff coming out. Sounds okay. extremely exciting. I'll link the, the podcast and your blog and all of that good stuff, your website to the show notes here. All right. Well, April, thank you so much for your time. This was lovely. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's so nice to hang out with you guys and talk about all the things. All the things. Hey, look, we're open to more of this. So if you want to talk about more things. (laughs) I also want your recommendation for a book on the menstrual cycle. I took down all of your all of the things you said, but if you haven't. Okay. Taking charge of your fertility is actually a yeah. fantastic place to start. Okay. I also love um, the period worth care manual by Laura Bryden. She's also a fantastic person to follow. She's incredible. I got to meet her. I'm, I'm just in love with all of her work. Um, What's the book called? Period what? The period repair manual. Oh, the period. Okay. You kind of touched on food. She goes through food, supplements, all sorts of different things you can kind of do to help nudge your cycle into maybe a healthier so that you aren't experiencing so many symptoms with PMS or PMDD or throughout the rest of your cycle. Oh, thank you, April. Thank you so thank much. You so, so much great to meet you. you. And let's stay in touch. Thank you. And thank you so much for listening. If you were interested in any of the books that were mentioned, you can tweet me, you can send an email, goodisinthedetailspod at gmail.com. We are going to do another episode, the three of us, I think for August, where we're going to discuss a couple of the books that were mentioned here. So if you have any questions, get in touch. Okay, there's a Facebook page. Please like it. And if you can, tell Rudy he's funny. Don't forget about that. Okay? He doesn't ask for much. Now, in the meantime, and until next time, stay safe, wash your hands, and stop hoarding the toilet paper. Bye.